Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the DXM podcast. I am Colborne Bell, and I am honored to be joined today by artist Ricky Albenda. Uh, thank you for coming on the program. Absolutely. My pleasure. Yeah. So we start uh, these shows everywhere in the same place, and that is just giving you the space to introduce yourself in the manner that you best see fit. I'm just an artist, like I guess an artist, and um, branching out into some digital work that I've wanted to really do for decades, but haven't really had a platform. So some of these ideas that are coming out now have been like percolating for a very long time. Yeah, that is uh, that is very humble. Um, you know, I I won't go into your background, but it is uh, it's just incredible. Uh, I think you know a, a very enviable career for a lot of people that could be listening, um, and the work itself is stunning. So, in all instances, I encourage everybody to uh, get out there and and do their own research. Do you want to maybe take us back to, you know, the, the early days, what it was perhaps like coming out of RISD, what New York City was like in these times, and okay. what was exciting you artistically? Okay, um, sure, uh, let's see. I remember coming out of school, coming to New York, walking around, going to see shows, trying to think about what I wanted to do. And um, I remember two things stick out pretty strongly that might refer to what I'm doing now. One was that, you know, the most powerful work I'm seeing is mostly advertising. Hmm. Um, you know, the human body, the bold text, messages, these things were like more powerful to me than, um, and some of the more art academic stuff that was going on, you know, in, in art at the time. So I felt like, you know, it was important for me to like try and put my energy towards finding a way to like route, route that into, you know, art making. And, you know, one of the ways it did was that, you know, text started coming into my work a little bit. Um, and I, and I, and I found like that was carrying a lot of, of the power. Um, and then, you know, <laughs> so it's so cheesy, but, you know, I, I had a dream and, and in my dream, um, the sort of like the answer came to me, like what was the most important thing to do as an art? And I was still sort of an art student uh, mindset. So in my dream, I was a student. It was an assignment. And, um, and you know, the answer was that to, to, to bring a story, that the, the concept of story was the most important thing and to somehow tell a story as concisely as possible. And in my dream, you know, the answer was a single word and the word was honest. Um, honest being in some way, you know, the implication was like, you know, you say go, like, and the implication is that you say you go. Well, the implication of saying the word honest was like, blah, 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 this is the story of my life, honest. Just like this idea of the intentionality of it being sincere or, or whatever. And uh, so, you know, that was like the first word on its own that I painted. And that kind of started uh, the whole, you know, trajectory of, of doing paint words and um, trying to capture not really so much the story that was just kind of the lead in. Um, it's more about 
taking the label of something that, you know, theoretically is reducible to a single knit of, or a data, you know, a single knit of information. That's actually this whole wealth of information because of not only connotations, but because of the connotations of certain segments of the word, different letter combinations have different associations because they're in lots of other words or because they relate to some ancient language or, you know, whatever it is. And to kind of just kind of develop the kind of world of the single label. And then um, after working on that for a while, I, I came to this, um, this, this drawing that was just a doodle, but I, I, I saw in it something really important, which was again, a story. Um, we do these kind of square like doodles, there's one right now, just doing, but, um, but instead of being a square, they, 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 they kind of like fed off of each other and they became this kind of perspectival unfolding of space. And I realized that's like a story. That's like taking the idea of like, you know, the stock graphs or, or, um, or ecocardiogram that's just, you know, the pacing of, of your life as it moves forward, but then the projecting into kind of a, a third dimension or even two, two more dimensions, height and, and um, well, not height, because the thing goes, yeah, I guess it's just a third dimension of depth. Right. I don't know. It just it was something that I went with, and it and it and it spewed out a whole bunch of of works uh, related to that. You, you know, I've been doing uh, a fair bit of just dream study lately, uh, looking at um, you know the symbols and the words, and it's it's funny that you know this this came to you in this way, but I think there is something inherently probing of the subconscious about your work that I don't know if it's particularly like an American advertising context, uh, but these are so many phrases that we've repeated to ourselves that we've internalized. So, oh, definitely. So when I see one of your works, I immediately have like some internal dialogue, some pre position to this work, to this phrase, to this no. statement. Um, Absolutely. I, I find that very powerful. Yeah, no, that's actually a big part of this sort of the dialectic of the work because on the one hand, it's this incredibly materialistic thing because it's so precisely painted and uh, addresses gravity in, in these ways, you know, the serifs and this kind of like a, you know, an architectural quality to the, to the font itself. Right. But at the same time, is a kind of a dematerialized artwork because it enters the mind and it kind of like leaves with you and it stays there like a song stuck in your head. Or, or something like that. And so that was actually a really important part of the work. Again, you know, when you've been doing something for so many years, some of the most basic, you know, important aspects of them become so automatic that you forget that that's part of the work. But that is, that was sort of like early on a really important part of, of, of the work, the idea that it was like something that was, you know, outside of the physical. Um, that it was, you know, inside of you. And I can imagine what it would be like to live with these works and like sit with these mantras and really go deep into the intentionality. I think especially in a day and age like today where there's so much digital clutter, where there's so much spam, where there's so much trash, just like the simplicity and, you know, the, like the art as the object, as the mantra in that reductionism is... I would imagine living with this work to be very nice. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll one day, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um,
do you want to maybe we can talk about breathe sure breath? can definitely talk yeah. about breathe um the the uh the original breathe or the recent project that i did well as you okay. wish let's trace it yeah um yeah it's uh breathe was one of the earlier works i did as well and and and, and one of the things I, I really liked about breathe I, I really like silent letters it's another thing where like i guess it's a kind of it's similar to that dialectic between the material and this like immaterial because the silent letter is material on the page but it's immaterial in your mind but it's not like at least for me when i pronounce two words that are spelled differently but pronounced the same i feel them differently inside um so anyway breathe has this silent e which changes it from breath to breathe obviously and and kind of creates this kind of sustain that pulls you through um mm -hmm. which gives it a quality that you know breath breath is like a feather floating by and breathe is like this it's a non-physical thing. It's it's a I can't you know I couldn't put it into I couldn't create a, a a physical metaphor for it because it kind of evades physical metaphor. It's just like um, it's a continuity. It is an onomatopoeia into itself, right? It has. It, that I think it, it has it has a certain onomatopoetic energy to it. I I mean it doesn't sound you know breathe doesn't sound like breathing, but yes, I think there is a there is to me there is and i think sometimes that does happen i think sometimes that's an illusion like you're so connected to the meaning that you imbue the sound of the word with some kind of like kind of sensory you know or or, or, or tactile um parallel to, to the to the concept and maybe it's not actually there but the brain creates it i i have always been connected to that word so i did a I've done a lot of iterations of it from like really tiny ones to one that's like 18 by 12 feet mm. tall. When I had a chance to do, finally do a series of, of uh, paintings that would trace the development of the work and kind of like take one painting and break it up into several, I chose the word breathe. And so I did this series of, of four paintings where I started with one on a kind of a, uh, a vellum material that's kind of transparent, translucent, and finished it as, finished it to like, you know, level one or whatever. And then I, I set it out and I traced it down with another piece of vellum. And then I took that painting as if it were the other and I took it to the next level. And I did that until I got to the fourth one, which I then finished. Um, and then when I did all of them, uh, I did go back and, and finish them all. Um, but I recorded each one in in the different ways, and 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 you know they all kind of developed differently after that. So this was kind of the perfect project to use for the time lapse project, which was another idea that I'd had. So I kind of married these two different ideas into one idea. Um, you know, the paintings start out very you know rough and scrappy. If I don't use a stencil, which I no longer, okay, for a while I was using stencils to supposedly save time, but actually it takes some more time. <laughs> um, and yeah, they, they, they get to this point where even though you can't see when you're on top of the painting, how the change affects the composition, when you step back, somehow, you know, the, the sort of like, I don't know, the way you perceive things is, 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 is elusive, but you might not be able to see a detail up close because it's imperceptible, but it affects 
the flow of a curve of a line or, or you know, the, the massing of like something it's, that's so subtle that it's not accessible to the sort of conscious mind, but it is accessible to the kind of like the forest mind, right? The, and, and you see the thing in a, in a better way. And so I, I wanted to try and like kind of, I mean, I wanted to capture it. I don't think I did because the resolution of the of the of the screen just isn't you know at the point where you could really capture that. Although you'd be surprised, like changing one pixel from you know a two fifty four gray to a two fifty three gray would not be perceptible close. But you step back, even yeah. though the resolution of the painting is much finer, it changes that one pixel from two fifty four gray to two fifty two gray or whatever, and maybe it would still work. And I don't really know, but I, I don't think it. That's one amb ambition that we didn't really achieve in that in this project, but it still addresses the whole idea that you move from like these big changes to this kind of like imperceptible mm. changes that are still, you know, purposeful. Um, mm. So yeah, that's that's sort of how the Breathe project kind of panned out. I actually would love to do another one with you know the higher resolution film and maybe even in stereoscope. Mm. That's something that's sitting in the back of my. On, on one of many back burners. Can I ask what was the motivation to move into the digital? I think you answered some of it, but. You know, there wasn't really a motivation. I've always liked digital. I mean, in the, in the you know, in the eighties, I spent weeks on end just designing like little icons for the computer. I don't know if you, you probably remember, but I do, in the yeah. Apple, the colors would change when you clicked on them. And so there were some colors that would change and some colors that were not. And if you did it just right, you could have like a blank screen. Yeah. And if you click on it, suddenly there's a face. And I did a lot of, I just was so into it, but there was no market for it. I mean, I, 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 I eventually I thought I want to do a show of all my icons. I mean, I had hundreds of them, you know, they would have been like perfect NFTs. They're, they're, right. they're pretty much lost at this point, but I, you know, I, I, I didn't have an outlet. So in a way I've been doing digital art, the whole time it's just that um you know it was more like almost like a hobby because it didn't have it, it wasn't it wasn't marketable but i certainly tried to show it to whoever would watch or look um yeah is is are nfts a compelling medium for you i mean are there certain aspects maybe around like price transparency or secondary sale royalties or there is there are lots of uh, um, reasons why I think NFTs are really interesting. Those two are part of it, but also one of the things that excites me the most is the things that I haven't thought of yet um, mm. that can be done with it. Uh, for one example, I, I had this idea. I, I, um, I lost a, a, a pet about five, six years ago, and it was, it was pretty traumatic for me, but I, I spent all many, many years after that, you know, trying to think of a way to sort of commemorate my loss or not my loss, but commemorate their life. life yeah. um, and and uh, the do my dog's name was Albert. And there's this thing called a dwarf Alberta spruce. And Albert is uh, was a chihuahua. And mm -hmm. so, you know, dwarf Alberta spruces have this thing. They, they revert to their to their parent plant, which is a large Alberta spruce. And it's a very specific species, just one that that had this mutation that made it dwarf. So anytime it reverts, it's this one tree that they found in Alberta, you know, six mm. years ago. And I thought, okay, I'm going to commemorate my dog by collecting these these reversions and 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 creating um, 
creating seedlings, well, not seedlings, whatever they, you know, new trees, clones, yeah. um, that would grow into these giant trees. So they would be like, in my mind, like a, a giant among dwarfs. You know, my dog was a giant. Mm. And so then I thought, oh, one could make an NFT where you, you, you pair a kind of like photo montage of his life with one of these sprouts and, and, and you sell an edition of 12 and that the edition can fork after a certain number of years, you can take a cutting of your tree and you can, you can sell, you know, four or two or however many, however the math would work out, you know, you could, you could keep one and sell one to keep one and sell three. Um, but in order to sell the montage, which was the sort of digital aspect, you would have to go through the process of doing this very, very difficult clone, cloning um, evergreens, is especially conifers, is very difficult. So mm. it would be like this weird kind of like, yeah, like it's an investment because you could, you know, you know, repay on dividends a few years down the road, but you have to put in this very loving kind of work um, to do so. So it's not just like, you know, it's, it's a participatory thing. Like what, how could you do that without, I mean, I guess you could do anything uh, and just sort of imagine that, you know, whatever context, you know, I mean, not context, whatever structure that the NFTs allow for, but that's not the same thing. It's like when, when, when the medium kind of invites those kinds of innovations. Um, so that's, that's something that's exciting to me. I had an idea yesterday about like getting a thousand dollars in $10 bills and cutting them in half and handing them out randomly. And the people have to find Man, <laughs> and I thought that could be like very you know applicable to the NFT space because you know you could have two parts that if you you know join them, then they become you know you know cash money, but at the same time there's this other idea. Well, are they more valuable as the cash money, or are they more valuable as the concept? And so, what do you do? Do you do you you know meet your person and cash out and get your money, or do you keep it? And then, and how does the royalties work? And there's all these different, like, you know, as a person who loves systems, yeah, the NFT space is a is a great opportunity to sort of like play with the system itself of the distribution and the nature of value. Um, so yes, I, I have this other project where I do these paintings where they're it's a series of paintings. Uh, it's called the chrysanthemums, and they are they always stay the same proportion in the front. They're all, but they get to any size and they can go from microscopically small to big enough to, you know, cover, you know, half the face of the moon, theoretically. Mm. Um, and the dimensions of the, of the depth of them change depending on the thing. And there's this elaborate mathematical graphs that do it. That's kind of like a, you know, that's cool for making real paintings in the real world at a certain time. But like, what if you wanted to buy one that you could put on the moon? Well, in the digital space, you could get one, and although you can't put it on the real moon, you can put it on the moon in some, you know, some metaversal space that has moons in it. Totally. Um, and uh, or you know, microscopically, you know, it would be really. I mean, in my project, the price is is like you know, sort of zeros out at a certain size. Actually, I have the pieces. These are just some pieces. This one is like the cheapest side. It's pretty thick. Right. And this one is like a lot more expensive. It's smaller. That's the front face. But in the side, it's like a sculpture. 
Does that make sense? Amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, um, and, and the graph is, you know, this cool like graph that shows how it all works. Anyway, the point is, is that, you know, as a real object, yes, it would be a nightmare to me, for me to make this. That's why it's more expensive. <laughs> and when you get smaller and smaller, you're getting into microscopic things. Right. That's cool. And that's that was the, the original idea. But I realized later that um, it's also a great place for the NFT space where you could have, of course, the price wouldn't have to price wouldn't relate. The prices would all be the same or the, maybe there would be price relationships, but I don't know what they would be. You'd have to think about that. Yeah. So yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, the NFT space for those reasons. Yeah. I, as as far as just clearly sparking uh, more creativity and like limitless imagination, uh, I think it's just invited a lot of people to the table of what is possible. And then I think also the ability to foster interactions, connections, make those recorded, see and explore different types of interactivity and the social dynamics of all of this. Um, it's been just so fascinating to observe and participate in. Absolutely. And the other thing, just the most basic thing, is that it's a space, yeah. right? So whenever you have a, a new space, uh, that's like, I mean, that's that's what, in the way, all art really is, is, is about understanding space and exploring space, mm. whatever, whatever kind of space that is, whether it's pictorial space, you know, or, or, or three-dimensional space or you know, some, you know, um, narrative space. I mean, there's everything that exists, you know, has to unfold in a certain kind of space and understanding how that space, at least for me as, as an artist, that's always been like one of my most, most passionate, uh, interests is, is understanding the nature of, of a given space. Um, and digital space, of course, is so boundless. Yeah, and right. and so many different ways of, of thinking about it. You know, it's like just doing a, you know, website for for this piece. And I, and I had this thought, like, well, maybe it shouldn't be all hyperlinked. What if it was like, you know, this just this vast page, just mm -hmm. one vast page that, that, that you, you know, you would just kind of drag around in and be just kind of like navigating this like two dimensional, like, you know, desert. Um, finding things that get further and further away from the core that's just like all clinging to this kind of like you know nav bar that's in the middle and then i was like well what if on the other side of the nav bar there was like this like inaccessible like antimatter you know universe that was part of the website but you couldn't get to it or you know depending randomly when you got online you'd end up on one side or the other but you couldn't see both at one time and it, you'd have to log back on i don't know there's all these different things that can happen when you're dealing with different kinds of space Right. Absolutely. Um, something we haven't touched on that's obviously relating to this upcoming project uh, is, is your color studies. Yeah, totally. Um, and that's that's a big that's a big that's a big one. Um, the, the color, the color kind of, you know, I've always been like a really, really into color. But ironically, for, you know, almost, you know, for, for, for several years when I was doing the words, I was I was really insistent on not using color um, mm. because I was interested in the words as 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 words and color is on top of the words. It's not intrinsic to its wordness. So why would you introduce color? Then it just becomes a design element, and and it doesn't really. It's not really um, about what the work is about. But then you know another like epiphany. I just realized well, if every letter was you know if you were to make it that color was integrated into 
the text or the, or the alphabet in such a way that there was no weighting of it and they weren't making a choice, then it would work. And then so I, I, I had this realization, you could map the alphabet onto the spectrum. So, you know, A to Z, again, like, again, this idea of the narrative, like from left to right or right to left or whatever, that there's like this unfolding, this is kind of linear uh, transformation that relates to time. Well, the alphabet could lay onto the spectrum in that way. And so I, I did that and then started opening up my interest in color more. And then, you know, started this, then, you know, at a certain point I, I realized, well, that's all well and good, but you know, the alphabet is used by everyone and it needs to be universal. <laughs> um, how can everyone use this, but still do their advertisements and have a red headline? So I was like, well, because the original system was called Color I Me Try, it's like a joke on colorimetry. And then I came up with the universal color, which was to create a color space where you could sort of like take whatever, you know, mapping that the, the colors of the word would be in, in the Color I Me Try system and then kind of slide them to the reds or slide them to the blues or towards the blacks or the whites. So you could basically have a monochromatic word that was still polychromatic. It would just be kind of expressing these both things. And, and that got me into deeper and deeper kind of color theory study and then breaking down the colors colors into, you know, just trying to reanalyze re how color works. And um, so I have an extensive body of color theory work and um, my color system is based largely on, on simul, what is it called? Not simultaneous, um, you know, uh, optical mixture. Mm. You have like, and you know today's retina screens are perfect for doing the kinds of studies I do because you can just make a, you know, a, a, um, a checkerboard in these pixels and it still reads as a single color. So mm -hmm. it's really great for for developing um, these color theories and um, and then yeah and then I just started you know getting into color symbolism and the, the clock thing happened and you know north south east west and. And, and, a, and a variety of other kind of like elemental ideas that could map to color. Um, and that's where the clock came from. Um, and uh, yeah, and so like I said, I thought of the clock probably a decade ago and I, I certainly like met with a few people trying to get it off the ground, but um, yeah. between my, you know, lack of software skills and, um, and, and lack of, uh, I don't know, <laughs> I wasn't able to get anyone on board to kind of push it, push it forward. And I, and I just kept kind of developing it in the background until, you know, fortunately I mentioned it to, uh, to Jackie over at Dementi and she was like, this sounds amazing. We have to do this. So yeah. that's, that's, that's how it happened. So I will, uh, I will shamelessly plug that we are hosting a 24 hour event uh, around the color clock here at the Mocha church. Uh, it'll be the first live programming that I have done in in this building. Um, Amazing! So, yeah, yeah, we're we're I'm super excited. Um, I know everybody's super excited, and that will be at the end of April. Should we talk more about what the color clock is? Yeah, absolutely. The color clock is well. First of all, the system, the color system, as I said, it's 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 uh, it's. It's not just linear, the alphabet is linear, but at a certain point I thought it would be, you know, the alphabet just goes the spectrum, but then from red, between red and blue is magenta, which takes the spectrum and makes it into a color wheel. Hmm. And um, the alphabet is 26 letters. My color system is 30 colors. 
So the clock has 30 sections and those are hues, right? So, um, you know, magenta can be anything from mauve to like blinding magenta to just like a very pale pinkish white. They're all going to be, uh, you know, 6 p.m. in the color system. But what I wanted to do for the clock was to kind of like take that kind of like, you know, conceptual base and kind of like pad it out with a, a more um, uh, metaphoric, intuitive experience of what color, how the color and the time of day relate, first of all. So what I did was I, I took, I took a grayscale and I kind of did like a sine curve, which is like, I don't know if, if uh, mathematicians will know that a sine curve is kind of like a stretching out of the cycle. Like if you take a spring and you pull it open, you'll get a sine curve. So that's what a sine curve really is. So I did a sine curve basically from white to black, actually not white to black, but light gray to dark gray. That was symmetrical, perfectly symmetrical. Um, so that sunset and and sunrise, theoretically, I mean, 6 p.m. is not usually, not necessarily sunset or sunrise, would be kind of this middle gray and would be identical to each other. And there'd be a symmetry from sunrise and sunset or 6 p.m., 6 a.m. And there'd be a, a sort of an, an opposition um, from noon to midnight. Uh, I'll just throw in an aside here is that the color clock is not just a clock, it's also a calendar. So mm -hmm. the year also has this exact same idea except that you know I haven't created specific colors that I think are most appropriate for for that particular thing it might they might turn out to be the same I, I haven't really I haven't given it a ton of thought you know once this became possible to do like originally my color clock like the one that was on my desktop when this whole thing started was my alphabetic system which is where everything is balanced same value same same intensity so that when you're reading it as text on a page nothing's jumping out it all started still like lies lines and flat on the page hmm. but for the actual color clock i wanted to do something a little bit more you know juiced up or, or, or and and different from from the from the text idea so um where was i what, what, what am i getting at here i guess that's yeah that's that's pretty much it uh i mean then of course i i reworked it after that i actually have paperwork and paperwork and paperwork notes like waking up at four in the morning oh this is too bright this is too dark this is too this this is that and and actually it's it's still not totally um resolved and one of the things that i made really clear you know with Dominti when we went forward is that you know the actual colors of the base system they they need to be upgradable because i'm still mm. working out what's like just the right you know like again i said any 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 turquoise color from the palest to nearly black is 4 a.m. But I want there to be a sort of like a, a prototypical, like, you know, sine curve one that kind of represents something more just like what you'd imagine the color to be, um, or what I imagine the color to be. Yeah. So still working on that. The bright colors, those should stay the same. Like there's the clock has the um, each edition. There's a there's a sort of a parallel clock underneath the underneath the hood of the clock, which is like basically the brightest hue or the brightest color of any given hue for a specific time that um, that can be expressed within the medium that's expressing it. 
So, you know, um, you know, we, we, I created like an sRGB set for the internet and also a P3, is it called P3? It's a little bit, there's another letter in there, but you know, like the new Apple screens, okay. uh, the, the yeah. wider gamut. So I, I did both of those, um, you know, eventually there could be, you know, even wider gamuts, but essentially those colors will never change. Those are just the brightest possible um, hue for the, for the system as it, as it stands. Um, but yeah, the base colors will, will evolve a bit. And that's, that's, yeah, that's, I guess. Yeah. And I had, uh, you know, I had talked about living with your work and I, I am, we're really going to live with this one for 24 hours straight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, it's exciting. And I'm excited to see just how it all comes alive in this space. Yeah. That'll be fun. I guess I should, I should, I mean, I should just make it clear that, because I feel like it's been generally a slightly unclear that yeah, each edition is like named a specific minute. And when that minute comes along, the bright version of the color pops on your, you know, your particular NFT screen and, or, you know, it doesn't have to be a screen, you know, I'm looking into like figuring out how to like manipulate like DMX lighting things so that you could have like mm. just a light that would be, you know, connected to the NFT. It's, it's, it's the NFT really is like a set of colors. Amazing. Um, but yeah, when, when your, when your minute comes up, it's like, you can toggle it so it goes on or you can just keep it like a basic clock and um, that's it. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, well, we will, how about we continue on a, a non-linear exploration of time? Yeah. Um, you know, I am curious, first, uh, you know, what was it like to have a, a solo show at MoMA? Doing a project at MoMA was pretty intense. It was really intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. uh, I remember there was like, um, it was really hard to get, I had to do these architectural drawings and didn't know exactly how to do it. And then I, I, I walked in and there was this one shadow that was supposed to connect perfectly with the corner of a ceiling wall. And um, there was a clip light right where the shadow and the wall were supposed to connect. And I was too intimidated to say, can we take that clip light off? I got to make sure that the, shadow connects but i thought like oh well if it's off it'll be off by this or whatever but the architect that we'd hired to do the drawings for me had made a four inch mistake mm. four inches instead of a quarter inch and so it was like it was off by like this much and i had to like take a piece of wood and put it in front of the light so it would cast the shadow in a different place so it all connected it was it was really crazy but you know, working in a situation like that is you know it's pretty intimidating <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine. But it was, you know, they were great. It was great. I was you know, super happy about it. And um, aside from that one thing, everything came out like, as well as I could ever have hoped. So amazing. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, my last question is there's a lot of young artists who listen to this. Um, and you already spoke kind of around like finding your intentionality or, uh, you know, the, the inspiration for what would become a, a large part of your practice. I'm wondering if you just have any advice in this day and age for artists that are trying to be seen and get their work out there. I suspect that the best way to do that is to like get yourself out there and meet people and, and, you know, talk to people because you know, you, you're, you're the agent of, 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 uh, of, 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 of your exposure. 
in that way. I, I don't I don't know of any other kind of ways of doing it, like just make friends, <laughs> you know, friends in your own peer group, I think. Ultimately, I think that, you know, the people who are going to appreciate what you're doing mm. are going to be in your own peer group. Um, mm. I know that, like, you know, maybe when I was a young artist, I thought, like, it would be somehow valuable to, like, seek out, like, you know, established people to try and, like, get some kind of traction. But uh, in the end, it was really my peer group that that helped me um, kind of develop, you know, the career aspect of, 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 of my work. And just those are the people who were putting together scrappy shows or whatever. Those are, like, you know, not, like, the artists that I most admired, you know, they're, they're just, it's just a different, uh, I don't know, it's practical. I think that's super, super advice. I think a lot of, you know, the, uh, especially in something as volatile as this, right, to be able to have that peer group to go back to, to have that validation from other artists, um, I think that is just really invaluable. They're also the ones who are going to actually get it, you know, yeah. and, yeah. Um, and, and they're the ones who are going to like say, oh, well, what if you did this, like that are actually going to help you kind of grow, you know, the, the, the make, make it more sophisticated. Would love to give you any last words. If there's anything you want to share, if you want to let people know where they can find you or your work or. Uh, come to come to the, you know, the upstate. Yeah. I know the invite says uh, you have to RSVP. So. You know that's a little intimidating, but uh, can send me a message. RSVP anyway. If you don't, not sure you can make it, and yeah, then if you can't make it, you can't. Make it. Yeah, I love that. All right, <laughs> uh, it's been look. I'll say it's been a real honor. It's been a real pleasure having you. Uh, I really, really appreciate the time. Uh, I learned a lot, and thank cool. you so much for yeah. sharing. And I, uh, I think it'll be invaluable for everybody. Uh, for your first podcast, I thought you did great. Thanks, great. <laughs> Looking forward to meeting you in person. Cheers. Uh, I'm I'm Colborn Bell. Uh, we were joined by artist Ricky Albenda. Thank you, Dementi, for putting us together. And we will see everybody next time. Breaking news.